Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the senior principal product evangelist at Sixth Sense. He is, and I quote, risking life and limb for the cause of aligning revenue teams. And he's doing it with unique tactics like the Sixth Sensory Supper, a sensational experiential executive dinner that's been called, quote, the most engaging three-hour sales call you've ever been a part of. And he's got a background in sales enablement, sales engineering, and menswear. Amir Rod, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Thank you, Ethan. So excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you. I love your story. I love your background. I feel like you are in a role that only you could fill. And I feel like that's something I could only say on a podcast like this one. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think it's true of of a lot of the guests that you've had too. So um, uh, for me, I can't imagine, I'm, I feel very blessed that I'm in a company that sort of has given me the runway they have to kind of play with different ideas and uh, you know, m- most of them have won. Some of them have lost. Um, you know, I've pitched some things that didn't work out kind of the way I imagined. Um, but yeah, I like they offered to sort of design a role around me and I couldn't have asked for it to work out any better than it has. Awesome. We're going to get into some of that stuff. We're going to get into the dinners that you're hosting. Uh, but we're going to start, as you well know, as a regular listener to the show, where we always start, which is what is the most important role of an evangelist? Yeah, so Ethan, I've thought a lot about this because I've listened to every episode, so I know this is coming. Um, the first thing I think I want to say about it is I love the diversity in the answers that you've received to this question. Um, like, I don't think I would disagree with any guest's previous definition uh, or you know their description of what the role entails. Um, I wanted to come up with something really original, but I think what what I particularly have brought to the role, sort of why the role was created for me and kind of the obligation I feel to sort of fill it um, is around showmanship with sort of the broader goal of being creating excitement, you know, around our solutions. Um, so I know a number of guests you've had have talked about, you know, focusing more on the the pain and the problem statement than the solution. At the end of the day, All of us evangelists need the company to be selling our products, even if it's not us that are directly selling the products. Um, And so for me, the way to sort of generate excitement about what Sixth Sense does um, is through these different types of experiences, the dinner being one of them, um, that try to generate excitement uh, about our space, our category, and specifically our products and solutions. Love it. Go for a minute at this. So I'm very clear on it does need to connect to the product. Uh, It is about emotion in general, excitement in particular. Speak a little bit to showmanship. Sure. Um, Well, yeah. So, I mean, just to back up a step, part of the reason I'm at Sixth Sense um, is I had uh, worked at a couple gigantic software organizations, um, uh, Microsoft, Oracle before that, um, enjoyed both, but kind of knew I wanted to get back to a smaller organization. 
And so I reached out to the CEO of Sixth Sense, who I'd worked with 25 years ago, um, but had for the most part lost touch with. Um, and uh, this was right before Thanksgiving. I guess it would have been 2021. We went for lunch. And kind of the first thing he said to me um, was, you know, I just remember you being a showman. And what he meant by that was back when we worked together during the dot-com boom and, and even part of the bust um, was in addition to being a sales engineer and doing demos, um, I also tended to MC um, the big sales kickoffs that we did, which often involved like producing songs for the vice president of worldwide sales who wanted his team to lip sync them, sometimes skits, um, you know, anything just to make these like three-day ordeals fun, engaging, keep the audience kind of on the edge of their seat type of thing. Um, and obviously, like I was capable of doing a really good demo. Otherwise, the conversation would have ended there. Um, but not everybody sort of has that desire to want to be on a big stage in front of everybody. I mean, I was joking. I wasn't joking when I said before this started that I'm nervous. I still get nervous every time I present or, you know, or do a big speech or even something like this. Um, hopefully I figured out how to contain it so the audience can't tell, but it doesn't mean it's, it's not there. Um, and so kind of over the course of the lunch, it was, well, let's see if we can figure out how to carve out a role for you at Sixth Sense. We don't really have someone that has my particular skill set. Um, I loved the idea. I was in very, I was in deep in conversations with other companies, um, that I was looking at, but I just, I couldn't resist the opportunity to sort of see where that would take me. Um, and so it's now been about a year and a half. Um, I've done a, a number of, of wild different things that probably most people don't get to do in their day jobs. Um, and I'm about to kick off another one here in a couple of weeks with an executive lunch for sales leaders um, that I don't think I've told you about, but maybe after the dinner can give you a sneak peek about that. Awesome. Love it. Um, so here, you know, we typically talk about evangelizing the problem more than the product, or perhaps instead of the product, you are a product evangelist. So you're certainly um, straddling both of those. But I'd love for you to talk about your famili familiarity with and your willingness to risk life and limb for this problem of uh, a, a lack of um, coordination and alignment across revenue teams in general or sales and marketing alignment in particular. It's something I imagine you have a lot of direct experience with, having served in sales enablement roles, pre-sales engineering roles. Talk about, um, you know, there are a lot of companies that could probably leverage uh, kind of this um, show production, enthusiasm, excitement side of you that just seems really natural. I'm so glad you're able to express it in this role. Um, but I feel like there's probably also some, something underneath all of this that makes Sixth Sense make more sense for you than a variety of other companies. And I think it's in your experience in this zone. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so this is um, my first time being in a marketing role. Um, so I actually had a title of technology evangelist probably for a period of like six months back in 1997, uh, first software startup I worked for. Um, and I soon became sort of a sales engineer and thought that title fit better for the, the role that I had there. Um, so, uh, I guess part of what's happened with Sixth Sense and sort of the, the showmanship angle um, is my experience in sales was always that um, I couldn't tell you what marketing really did for me. Like they were there. We knew they were doing a lot, but it was hard to sort of um, like as a seller, as a sales engineer, sort of point to 
pipeline that was generated. I mean, obviously we knew events they were doing. We might knew, know ads they were running, trade shows we attended, stuff like that. But it never felt like we were working sort of hand in glove. Um, and so, like, I don't, there wasn't, I don't think the cause I was sort of like born to fight for. Um, but having come from the sales side exclusively prior to Sixth Sense, I think has allowed me to speak to marketers in sort of a way that I can be a little bit more honest about the perceptions that salespeople have about marketing, which, by the way, most marketers know and vice versa, right? So, you know, sellers think, what does marketing do for us? They, you know, they're just off doing arts and crafts. It's not, you know, um, I, I can't point to the pipeline or the revenue they help me close. And meanwhile, marketing's complaints are, well, sales never follows up on the leads that we generate for them, you know, or, or, or thing, you know, they're lazy, they're golfing all the time, things like that. So um, I had experienced kind of that um, tension, never in a super negative light at any company that I'd been with, but definitely not one where um, I felt like they were on the same page. And that for me has been eye-opening at Sixth Sense, in part because of what our software does. And obviously, like, we better be using our own software. Um, but I have never been at a company where sales was rooting for marketing so much and marketing was rooting for sales so much. And the two teams are on a lot of calls together. And by the way, I'll, I'll include customer success as well. So really for us, it's about the revenue team, sales, marketing, and customer success. Um, and so there is like a genuine passion for me that like every company should experience what I'm experiencing now for the first time in my career uh, because every other stop that I've been at, I would say the relationship is sort of neutral, maybe slightly negative, but definitely nothing close to as positive as it is at Sixth Sense. Um, and actually, one of the things I'm going to do in this sales lunch that I'm rolling out is I'm going to ask everybody there to write down uh, on a piece of rice paper using an edible marker uh, to rank the relationship within their company between marketing and sales on a scale of one to five. So one is active sabotage, like the CMO is trying to get the CRO fired or vice versa. Five is ride or die. So if like the CRO were fired tomorrow, the CMO would resign that same day. And then in the middle is fine. And, you know, you can guess where two and four are. Um, and my promise to the attendees of the lunch is that I'm not going to share their answers with anybody. I'm not even going to keep their answers. I'm going to look at them during the lunch and the reason they're written on rice paper and with edible markers is I put them in a coffee mug, which I'm then going to pour coffee into at the end of the lunch and basically drink all of their answers. So there's no, you know, I'm not going to give the answers to our account team to use in our sales cycle. I'm not going to publish it as research. So I want their honest answers just for me anecdotally to know where companies are at. Um, but then also gives me this opportunity to sort of add some showmanship. There's another surprise around the coffee that I don't want to spoil, um, yet, but like, I'm literally going to, it was the easiest way to eat their answers so they can know that the secret, you know, will never leave the room. So good. I appreciate the tease to the experiential and sensational quality of what you're producing in terms of an event. And I'll just keep that tease going a little bit and double back into this idea that, um, you were an OG evangelist, and by that I just mean you had a title back when a lot fewer people did, uh, and you have it again today. When you think about what, how you thought, and obviously this is a very difficult question to answer with something very specific, but just speak to this in general. 
you know, because you're at a different place in your life, you're a different place in your career, you're in a different organization, you're probably in a different market, et cetera. But what did evangelism mean then compared to what evangelism means now to the degree that you can speak to that in any meaningful way? Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely for as rare a title as it is today, it is way more known and, and sort of accepted today than it was 25 years ago. I think 25 years ago, the simple answer, I mean, back then, like it was pretty much only probably, well, it had to be more than Guy Kawasaki because I can't imagine I was the second evangelist, but there definitely weren't a lot of them. And I remember reading his book back then and, you know, reading everything I could um, about him. Um, I think the reason I got that role or that title at that time was I had done some things at a trade show to basically bring a lot of attention and enthusiasm to our booth. Uh, that I would I'd, I would rather not say exactly what it was, um, but it was unique. It was substantive. So, you know, it wasn't just yelling and screaming or streaking, you know, or something like that. But it was um, it was kind of no one would have thought at the time I was probably 21, 22 years old. I was a political science major. So no first time I looked at the Internet ever was at a friend's computer to find out where I was going for the interview for this, what was really an internship um, at the time. And so they took me to this trade show in Chicago. I, I did this stuff and basically they're like, and then I was getting ready to go back to school in the fall. And they said, no, 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 we'd love to keep you. Um, and they made me a full-time offer and my title was technology evangelist. And I think at the time it was probably, this is someone with a lot of passion and enthusiasm, but who we don't really know has any technical chops. I didn't at that point. Um, and so it sort of made sense then um, and then I sort of learned quickly um, about the product, how it worked, things like that, and sort of um, evolved into a, a sales engineering role, which, which I loved. So fast forward to today, like I've, um, I was a seller at Microsoft for two years. I liked it. I kind of took the role primarily because I had a couple mentors that felt that I should get some experience as like a bag carrying, quota carrying salesperson. Um, because even though I was a sales engineer with a quota, it's not the same. I don't think they're that much different, but they are a little bit different. Um, and so I, I spent two years at Microsoft doing that and I liked it, but I didn't love it. Like I, I missed the demoing and the presentations and, and things like that. And this dinner that we will get to actually started at Microsoft even before I did it with Sixth Sense, but I'll explain that later. Um, so again, when the CEO kind of, he just threw out this sort of like showman role when it came to kind of the conversations with talent around the actual offer, it was actually our head of talent that said, hey, I was at Adobe and we had this evangelist role. What do you think about that? And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds perfect. You know, remembered that I'd had that title before. Um, so like, I don't even know that I would have thought of the title had it not been for the head of talent. Um, and then, you know, all your podcast has done is make me long for the title of chief evangelist. Um, I am a product evangelist now, which I think fits kind of where I am. You know, if I were the co-founder of the company or something like that, I probably would be the chief evangelist. I'm not. Um, certainly my my aspiration at this point would be to be promoted, you know, into a chief evangelist um, type role. But um, yeah, I mean, these days you don't have to do that much. You definitely have to explain to friends and family that aren't in tech, but people in tech by and large, kind of have a sense for what the role's about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can dodge this one or take it however you want, but I was recently talking with an executive 
who is implementing an evangelist role inside an organization, the person uh, that he is looking to tap into this role is coming from sales. They're very well compensated. In general, I think people coming from sales because of the way sales is comped. I mean, you don't have unlimited upside. It starts to cap out a little bit, but you know, I think bringing an evangelist in from a development role, from a marketing role, from a post-sale role of some kind is probably easier from a comp perspective. Um, any thought, because you have carried quota, like for you, I assume, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, um, I assume you're probably not making as much as if you were carrying a bag, but I also assume that this is probably bringing you to life in a way that you're willing to make that trade-off because you're well enough compensated that it doesn't matter. You get to be more of yourself and to have a role that better fits who you are as a human being and as a professional. Like anything in there you want to throw some color or light on? Yeah. I mean, we could probably spend 50 minutes on it um, just in general. I guess for me, so I, I mean, just to answer the question, honestly, I'm making less than I made at Microsoft, um, but mainly because I hit my number at Microsoft. So if I hadn't, I might be at, at around the same place. Microsoft tends to pay better. You know, the the Microsoft's Amazon, Google's, um, like those, uh, my wife works for Google. So, um, you know, I get that, um, that the big companies can just pay more. I wanted to go somewhere smaller. Um, and so I've traded some of the cash compensation for equity upside, you know, and, and hopefully that'll pay off. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I've experienced both. Um, by the way, at the company I was at 25 years ago, Blue Martini Software, um, like we were a rocket ship. We were one of the last companies to go out, though, in uh, mid-2020. So, you know, I was a paper millionaire for about three months during the six-month lockout. By the time the lockout ended three months later, I was, you know, maybe it was a down payment on a house, which I was 24, 25 years old. So not bad. I was also naive enough to not sell at the lockout. So watched it continue to go down and down and down and down. A lot of folks I think that were older than I was were very bitter about the way all that kind of, you know, shook out. For me, it was kind of like, it's not supposed to be that easy. I met some of the smartest people in my career. I mean, it's still, I, the memories from that experience um, I cherish today. I still talk to a lot of folks um, from Blue Martini Software. Um, but anyway, point being, um, like I went into this knowing I'm going to go from a large company with healthy cash compensation to a startup. Um, you know, the other thing is I feel like I'm making an impact on the culture at Sixth Sense um, after a year and a half. Like at Microsoft with 150,000 people, it doesn't matter what I did. I, you know, I was never going to have an impact. And I mean, maybe I did within my little pod, you know, or whatnot, but that that was about the extent of it. So everybody needs to make their own personal personal decision. I do have some variable compensation that's tied to my own individual performance and then also tied to company performance. So again, I want the company, the company needs to sell software for me to really maximize my own earnings, um, but I don't have a quota. Uh, I think if I wanted to make more money, I could probably volunteer to be a seller at six cents. And assuming I was a top, you know, 5%, I probably would, but there's also a chance that I'm mediocre and I, I might make less than I'm making now. So I think I'm in a good sweet spot where, you know, of course I would like to make more, but I'm very happy, um, you know, with where I'm at. Awesome. Thank you for all of that. I appreciate it. And I didn't mean to 
you know, ask anything too tight, but people are always asking me about comp and I just had this conversation and, and you came from the sales side. The other side of that conversation, by the way, is kind of ROI. He was talking about, well, my CEO is not clear on the value in this role. And so like, you know, I have this person that's earning a lot. I have a CEO that doesn't quite see the value yet. So with that, um, what was Sixth Sense trying to do in particular with this role? Like, what did they need that you were going to fulfill that an evangelist type of position, even if it had wound up being named something else? Um, what were they trying to solve with it? And um, are your metrics activity metrics or are they outcome metrics? Is it kind of like a loose positive correlation activity to outcomes? Like, um, what were they trying to solve and, and how are you kind of measuring or looking at, at whether or not you're achieving um, what you and the team are setting out to do with this role? Yeah, so obviously this topic's come up on a number of the different episodes, so I've had a chance to, to think about it a lot and I have what might be a, a hot take on this. Um, so I think at most companies, there's maybe one evangelist. You know, again, I know the Microsofts, Googles, some have maybe dozens, um, maybe even single digits. So my feeling is um, that the anecdotal is fine. And if you're not hearing the anecdotal evidence about how the evangelist is helping closed one revenue one way or another, then I think the evangelist probably isn't doing their job. But are there ways to attribute specifically a deal to the the demo an evangelist did or the keynote at a conference, you know, probably not. And I think you're probably wasting more time, energy, and effort trying to measure that than just kind of stepping back and saying, do the salespeople feel like they're getting value out of the evangelist? Does the marketing team feel like they're getting value out of the evangelist? And if the answers are yes and yes, and by the way, I mean, I do help our customer success team all the time. If the answers aren't yes, yes, and yes, then maybe you don't need the evangelist or maybe you don't need the person that you have in that role. Um, so I don't, I, again, I, I'm lucky. I, I don't really have any like um, metrics. I will say for sure, um, our chief marketing officer's top priority for me right now, and I don't blame her, is scale. Um, so the dinners are an audience of 20 people, you know, sometimes 15 so um, we just had a little WinWire deal celebration around a company that um, bought our software uh, and they attended the Boston dinner a couple months ago. And, and, you know, I try and make sure the events people see that. I try and make sure my manager sees that. Um, that's great. But it's like it's 15 people and not all 15 are probably going to end up buying. So like right now, a thing that I'm working on is a whole bunch of videos, you know, videos that'll be on our website, video that'll be on our community site, videos that'll go out into customer emails, kind of a whole back to basics series. So the idea is get my sort of product knowledge out to as many people as possible, as fast as possible. Um, and, and scale, I think, is a big priority. And by the way, for me, too, like as much as I love doing the dinners, it's, you know, they don't require my full time attention anyway. Going back to the first question of like what problem they were trying to solve, I think for me, I don't think there was a problem they were trying to solve. I think I was lucky, again, that the CEO, well, I mean, if I can be a little honest here, the CEO worked with me before. My interviews were with the CMO, the SVP of sales, and the chief customer officer. And, you know, I don't know that any of them wanted me. And I think the CEO kind of said, someone's got to draw the short straw. And so the chief marketing officer did. 
was kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. Um, we knew kind of the first thing was going to be kind of overhaul our demo, our product demo. Um, and then after that, I don't know that they knew. Uh, the dinner, no one asked me to do the dinner. Um, again, I'd done something like this at Microsoft with some success. And so I just kind of went off on my own and, and did it. And um, I'm very, you know, most of the stuff I've done has worked out such that if I see a need, I just kind of go work on it. And sometimes I want it to be a surprise when it's done. You know, the less people know that I'm working on it, you know, the better. Um, so I, I don't know that there was a problem that they were trying to solve. The other thing I should say about us uniquely is many of the evangelists you've had on are, are probably like the primary faces of their companies, um, at least sort of like from a presentation, keynote speaking perspective. I'm maybe third or fourth. So our chief marketing officer is probably the closest thing, is probably the face of our company, um, does a ton of keynotes, speaking, podcasts, things like that. We have a head of research, a former Forrester analyst um, that, you know, is probably second. Um, our senior vice president of revenue analytics, just because she's a former customer of ours um, and sort of is probably the primary user internally of our own software, is frequent, you know, she just did something for all of our customers last week. Um so I might be like the fourth face of the company. So I don't think they kind of needed that the way probably other companies, that might be what they're looking for in, evangel in an evangelist role. Um, but it, uh, so I'm trying to still kind of carve out my own niche of where I can, um, you know, get in front of audiences and stuff like that. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you want to shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect Engage Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Really good. By the way, great job calling back to my layered questions, which is a habit of mine. Uh, calling back like two minutes after a really good, uh, really good take. Uh, okay, so we mentioned the dinner a couple of times. You mentioned uh, its origin was it has some roots in a previous role. Um, in this context at Sixth Sense with this Sixth Sensory Supper, how many have you done? What is the same now as the first time you did it? Like, what is the kind of foundational philosophy or practice around it? And maybe what are a couple evolutions that have happened as you've uh, iterated on it? Yeah, so I think I've done uh, roughly nine um, with two more on the calendar. So uh, Seattle and Toronto next. I'll probably do one or two around uh, Salesforce, Dreamforce. When it comes to San Francisco, I hope I'll do one at our big customer conference. Um at some point, it'll probably get long in the tooth. Uh, I don't think it's there yet. We still haven't, you know, I'm hoping to come to Denver at some point, um, Southern California, you know, Atlanta, a bunch of big cities we have. A lot of them we've done, New York, Boston, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera. Um, the basic premise, I would say, um, so again, the company's name is Sixth Sense. Part of it is what our software does is help you sort of understand um, if prospects might be in market for the solution that you sell. And so that's kind of like the extrasensory perception I, of where our, the name of our company came from. So I wanted to play on that um, in terms, you know, obviously at dinner, your taste is easy. Um, you know, you're going to see things, you're going to hear things. Um, 
You're going to touch your food, although what I do with touch is different. Hearing, there's conversation, although what I do with that is different. So I wanted to play with that and sort of come up with um, a dinner experience that would stimulate all six of your senses. Um, and my, you know, you hinted in the introduction about my time in menswear. Um, what kind of made my menswear concept different was we had this whole social club sort of anchored to this men's retail store. And the club was open to men and women, but the store was primarily for men. Uh, so we sold, you know, suits, ties, jeans, dress shoes, you know, accessories, cigars, wine and spirits. We had a single chair barbershop, shine stand, etc. Um, and in the club, uh, to me, it was all about experience and hospitality. So we would frequently teach guests how to saber champagne. We would open uh, vintage bottles of port with these black iron tongs that you heat, and then you use something ice cold to ba basically crack the glass, and it's a very... It's a beautiful way to open a bottle of port. There's actually a, a logical reason for it, so you don't risk pushing the cork uh, that's been in the bottle for 50 years into the the, the port. Um, but it looks cool. People love to see it. Um, and so kind of blending those things that I learned in hospitality and sort of taking it to software, the basic premise um, is that each course is a different sense, starting with sight. And I do something with invisible ink. So the menus that are sitting in front of you the whole time actually have your dark funnel, which is a phrase we've trademarked at Sixth Sense around research prospects are doing off of your website. So BombBomb's dark funnel would be printed on your menu, but you'd, it look, looks like a normal dinner menu to you until we dim the lights. We hand out these UV flashlights and then you shine the flashlight on it and all of a sudden the whole room goes crazy because now they're see, you know, they had no idea it was sitting in front of them the whole time. So then similar things with the sense of smell. We do some things with wine aroma kits. Um, with taste, it's all about the different flavors in the entrees. With touch, we do this thing with sugar cookies that have forms where you need to fill out the form with an edible pen. Um, and then hearing is all about the blue blazer cocktail. And, and since you've mentioned it twice, my risking life and limb uh, for the cause of aligning revenue teams, I basically, the finale is timed to music and I make a blue blazer cocktail, um, which involves overproof whiskey, boiling hot water and transferring it from one tankard to another. And the, the showman way to do it is to kind of raise the tankards further and farther away. And so the first or second time I did it um, at this dinner, this is when I did it with Microsoft, I gave myself second degree burns. Um, it's a complicated story as to why, but like my hand was burned badly for a good couple weeks before it returned to normal. This was despite lots of practice. It never went wrong in practice and um, I got cocky. Um, so I haven't burned myself at six cents yet. I haven't burned down a restaurant yet or anything, um, but that's what I mean. But I am like literally risking life and limb um, for the cause. And I think what's made the dinner successful is it's not just about um, the dinner theater. Like there's a lot of substance in the dinner. You're going to leave having learned a lot because everything that's all the theater is incorporated into content, which is the same thing I had done at Microsoft. At Microsoft, I was selling their dynamic CRM product. And so the dinner was basically guided by their CRM modules for sales, marketing, customer service, field service, et cetera. So it's, I like to think it's equal parts entertaining, equal parts educational. Um, it's a ton of fun. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, if I could do one every week, I would, but we don't have that kind of events budget. 
really smart. I, you know, we hear terms like event-led growth. I think a lot of people recognize the benefit of being in physical proximity with your customers and your prospects and a couple of your team members, and more importantly, them being in proximity physically of one another. Uh, I think, again, we call this uh, we call this events loosely, but the way that you're designing entertainment and putting it on brand and educational is just so smart. Um, lunch, is it a just a unique twist or a better time of the day or like... Um, when did that come to, come to be? Was that also your uh, your uh, driving that, or did someone else say, "Hey, why don't we do a lunch too?" Because this dinner seems to be pretty good. Yeah. So, um, so no one asked me to do the lunch, uh, but a former coworker did sort of plant the seed about a lunch. So when I did my first dry rehearsal of this concept at Microsoft, different content than what I'm doing now, but same kind of basic idea. Um, one of, uh, one of my female coworkers, um, said, have you thought about doing this as a lunch as opposed to a dinner? And I thought, well, no, like there's so much content to cover. I need like the two to three hours of a multi-course meal. Plus we had these four different modules. So it made sense to do a four course meal. Um, but her point was it may be a lot easier for C-level executives, which is the audience we needed, right? CRM and ERP decisions are made at the C-level. If we're going to get them to give up our, their time, maybe they don't want to give up personal time away from their family, um, you know, to, to go out for an evening. And I thought that made a lot of sense. I'd probably just had my my son at that point. So, um, I was, yeah, you know, I hadn't thought of that. Is there a way we could sort of I would want to redo the the concept differently to fit into like a 60 or 90 minute lunch. But that sort of planted the seed at six cents. I think the other thing that happened is we've always had this kind of product primarily for marketers. Um, and in March, we introduced this new product that we can sell directly to sales. So before we've always had a sales focused module, but you had to buy the marketing platform to be able to use it. Now, a sales team can just buy this sales product without having to get marketing involved if they don't want to. Again, always better if you can align sales and marketing. Um, but if that's not in the cards for whatever reason, you could buy the sales product. So um so I wanted to do a lunch. The sales product is very different. The audience is very different. Um, instead of two and a half hours, I'm trying to condense this into 60 minutes. Um, I also wanted all the content. This is probably more just a me thing. I wanted all the content to be new and different. I didn't want to borrow anything from the dinner. So there is fire involved in the lunch, but it has nothing to do with port tonging or the blue blazer cocktail. Um, and uh, there's, you know, it's interactive I mean, I just shipped the stuff yesterday um, to the hotel where this will happen. And, you know, uh, it was probably 50 pounds of props, um, a hot towel warmer, um, you know, uh, creme brulee torches, uh, 20 uh, whiteboards with magnets on them. Um, all of this, you know, a lay, uh, giant foam dye, um, like all sorts of, you know, Every time I'm surprised half the time that TSA lets my dinner props through, you know, because the champagne saber looks like a sword. The port tongs look something like a medieval torture device. Um, but yeah, no one asked me to do the sales thing. I wanted to do it. I don't know if the lunch is going to work. Um, it's been really tough. Uh, I'm doing it in Salt Lake City because we're doing a mid-year kickoff there. So I'll have all of the sales leadership and marketing leadership there where they can kind of, I can dry run it for them, make sure this is something they'd want to invest in. 
Um, but getting a, a room full of prospects has proven harder than I would have thought. And I don't know if that's a feature of Salt Lake City, uh, lunch, or some combination of the two. So we'll, I'll probably try and do one in San Francisco where there's no travel involved or something like that soon. Um, it could be that I need to convert it into a dinner, which I would happily do. Um, but then I got to convince the wife that being gone four nights in a week to do the sales dinner one night and the marketing dinner another night, you know, um, I don't know what I'm gonna have to do to get, uh, the green light for that. So, yeah, I was with you on TSA, by the way, as soon as you said creme brulee torches, I'm like, how, like, it would, would, I can only imagine, uh, the, the mental leaps that people are making as they see this combination, you know, it's kind of like being in line at a store, like a Walmart where they sell literally all manner of things and you're in line behind somebody like, how did these six things wind up in one purchase? Uh, you know, how did this 50 pounds of stuff wind up at this? Yeah. The first couple times I traveled, I wrote a note. Actually, the first time I didn't know TSA, I just assumed checked baggage. They're probably not that concerned. Maybe there's an x-ray or something. They open it up and they leave a note like with initials. So after that first one way, you know, first leg of a trip, I wrote a note in there and was like, dear TSA person, this is all props for a dinner. You know, none of these are wet, which probably makes it more suspicious than if I just said nothing. Um, but I don't, you know, the port tongs I bought from Portugal, I'd love to not have to buy them again because um, a TSA agent, you know, can't figure out what they're for and who could blame them. So love it. So you've got some you got some events. They're very unique. They are sensational. They're on brand. They're educational. Uh, you're doing more scaled content primarily through video is what I heard. Um, you mentioned also that you're very engaged with your customer success team. Share a little bit about, and you know that this comes up from time to time, share a little bit about ways that a, a an account executive or an account manager or a CSM can engage you. Is it a formal process? Is it informal? Does someone just slack you or email you and you say, like, yeah, I can make some time for that next week. Like talk about that process. What are you doing um, directly on accounts, either pre-sale or post-sale, and how formal is the engagement around that? Yeah, I'd say, um, so for now, I'd say it's ad hoc and fine. Uh, I mean, if anything, I wish more people, you know, would ask for my help more more often. Um, you know, when uh, when we did our yearly reviews at the end of our fiscal a few months ago, you know, my my manager's big concern was, I'm going to get asked to do a lot of things. Like nobody knew who I was a year and a half ago. Again, even six, nine months in, um, I probably wasn't that visible sort of internally and externally yet. Um, and so, uh, it, so it wasn't a problem. Um, now, like I, I relish when a CSM reaches out and says, hey, this company is doing a sales kickoff, you know, in two months. Are you available? Like, yes, please. Um, you know, another experience I've developed, but I haven't, um, I've had a dry run, but not kind of the real deal yet. And it'll actually, for those that are listening and can't see my background, um, I have a giant DJ truss that's hanging all of my sport coats and suits back there. That DJ truss is temporary clothing storage because that's actually for the sales kickoff experience that I've designed. I actually mount a remote controlled confetti cannon to the top of it. Um, a photo backdrop, all this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, part of that is we have companies that are buying hundreds, sometimes thousands of sales seats from us. And sales adoption is hard with any product, CRM, sales engagement platforms, video, you know, as you know, um, anything. The best 
will try it out. And if it works, they'll keep it. Um, the mediocre will try it for a little bit and be the first to drop it. And the worst may, they probably didn't even know that you had something. Um, and so obviously we want our customers to be adopting our solution. And we know that customers that adopt our sales solution are 10 times stickier to us than if they're just using the marketing platform. Um, so I developed the sales kickoff experience. Um, and, uh, I've done one dry run at a customer. Um, I sort of rolled it out to the entire revenue team. It happened on a day that the entire customer success organization had to attend some technical training. So, you know, I put in the Slack channel, watch my five minutes here about, you know, I don't know how many watched it. My guess is maybe a dozen, two dozen. So at some point I kind of need to, to re-educate about that. Um, but, uh, you know, we can train them over Zoom or we can do what I want to do, which will be the most memorable, entertaining, educational, and I also hope, by the way, viral. So part of what I've designed into the experience is that some of the sellers or managers or whomever will find it so compelling that they take a picture or a video and they share that on LinkedIn or Twitter, you know, or Instagram, Facebook, what have you. Um, so I can't tell you whether that's going to happen, whether I've accomplished that or not yet. I, I hope to in the next couple months, um, but I'm ready. So Awesome. For folks who are listening and not watching, we do put everything up at youtube.com slash at, it's the at symbol, at Chief Evangelist. That'll take you straight to it. We do video highlights for every one of these episodes. We do the full episode with video and you can go there now and see a really, what I think is, because I have you pretty small on my screen, uh, I think is a six Sense Varsity jacket. Is that what we have back there? That's another pet project of mine. Um, so we just uh, sent these out about a month ago to 20 of our tops marketing operations practitioners. Um, at some point, um, I will burn that jacket. That was the prototype that I made for myself. Um, but I'm a big fan of exclusivity. And so I kind of, I had that one made really just as a proof of concept. I wanted people to see it and say, oh yeah, we should totally do that. Um, and so what I love about the varsity jacket specifically is that each jacket we did for a customer was completely unique. Now, part of it is because their name is going to be unique, right? But theoretically there could be two Joes or two Chris's or two, you know, April's. Um, but it wasn't just the name on the sleeve. We had the year that they first became a six Sense customer. I think the oldest one we had was 2014. So one guy that's been a customer now nine years, most of them were, you know, 19, 20 stuff, you know, um, but so that was unique. We, um, then had the patches on the body of the jacket. Um, or you can't see it on mine there. Um, but of logos of the different integrations they've done. So maybe drift. Uh, or sales loft or outreach, uh, or I know you had Randy on from Uberflip. Um, so they all had little, small little patches. So again, your the, the idea was that your journey as a Sixth Sense customer is reflected in this jacket that is unlike any other person's jacket because it's your individual journey with us. Um, and then eventually I wanted, you know, patches and pin. You speak at our big customer conference, you get a special pin or you do a reference for an analyst, Gartner Forrester, you get a different type of pin so that there's kind of, you know, this fear of missing out around like, oh, what's that on your, you know, how do I get that? What do I need to do to get that? Um, and so uh, I'm hoping our next customer conference is in October. I'm hoping to see a bunch of uh, mops, people wearing the varsity jackets, but people in Sixth Sense have said, can I get one? I'm like, no, 
I want this to be only for marketing operations customers. Um, so I don't plan to ever wear, I'm not going to, I wouldn't burn it, but I'm not going to wear it again. I'm not a marketing operations professional, so it'll stay in the basement as a prop and, and that's about it. So fun. I'm glad I mentioned it. I'm sure people have asked you about your role and your title as you're talking with other and, and you're engaging with, you know, executives from probably a variety of uh, companies that could probably benefit from evangelism. As you have these conversations, what advice or what kind of guiding questions do you have for people who ask, like, do I need an evangelist? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, Again, I think here I would be speaking sort of outside of Sixth Sense. Um, like Sixth Sense is blessed to have a number of folks that are great sort of presenters, thought leaders, can command a stage. You know, I am not needed for that as much as that's part of what I do. Um, so I definitely think, you know, if there's a company, let's say, with a technical founder, which is not that uncommon, um, you know, they're going to inherently... Um, they're going to do well in front of a lot of audiences just because their knowledge of the space, uh, their technical chops, you know, that's going to get them a long way. But sometimes you want passion, you know, charisma, joke telling um, or levity, maybe, you know, things like that. Um, so I, I think if you don't have an obvious sort of um, and, and, and face to the, you know, face of the company, I don't mean like on the cereal box, but. Like, okay, you're going to get this opportunity to speak at a Forrester conference, a Gartner conference, some other customer conference. Who do you want to do that? And if you don't feel like you're going to have somebody that's going to crush that precious time in front of a large audience of people, well, you're probably ripe for an evangelist. Um, now, what type of questions you ask them in an interview, you know, like, I don't know. Um, a lot of the evangelists you've hired or, or you've interviewed um, are folks that sort of, they were at the company, you know, and for whatever, like they were a natural fit. Um, I, I think specifically some of the folks you've had are not like the fiery or joke teller types, but they just ooze gravitas, you know, like you can tell from their experience, you're still hanging on every word, even though the style might be kind of sober. Um, but it, but it's just extremely credible. Um, and they're obviously knowledgeable about it. You know, if, if you can't easily name that person, you hire it and then how, you know, how you find it, I, I don't know. I mean, I think in some cases, I think it's hard to like open a job rec for it. I think it's more you find the person that you want for it and then you make the role for, you know, you don't need an evangelist till you find the person you want and then you go get them. That, that's probably the way I would. Yeah, that is the story. Both of them uh, that you kind of broke apart there at the end, this idea that someone is in the company, the company uh, confirms some needs, and the person is just naturally emergent. I would put myself in that category. I had already done all the webinars and all the training videos and all the promotional videos and all the things. So when the speaking uh, opportunities came, I was just, Ethan, you're going to do that. Like, okay. And so you just start doing it, and you're like, oh, I, I enjoy this. People seem to respond favorably. I'll just keep doing it. And then one day you wind up with the role and title. Um, but likewise, too, the idea that the role is bespoke, it's either I, – now, I did interview someone. It, it hasn't released as we're recording this now, but of course it will release before this conversation does. Uh, with Chris Cochran, he went and took an evangelist role at a company that was looking for an evangelist for almost two years 
and they were just trying to find the right person. So that is the much rarer side of like, you need the right person. And it is this unique combination of, of skills and things. Um, you know, this one's coming and I think you probably have something prepared for it. I can't wait to see what it is, um, or hear what it is. Um, what is something that you find yourself evangelizing in your own personal life or that someone close, something someone close to you has accused you of evangelizing? Yeah. So, um, uh, again, for those that aren't, that are listening and not watching, I'm in a coat and tie, um, because I like to evangelize dressing for work more. So I would say dress for every occasion. That's like my, my style. Um, I was just at Forrester Summit in Austin a couple weeks ago, and I wore my cowboy boots for the second time in my life. And uh, the first time I wore them was in Austin a year before. Like, I didn't own cowboy boots until I went to Austin. And I said, if I'm going to be in Austin, I should probably buy some cowboy boots. I did. And now I, I literally have probably worn them three days in the year and a half I've owned them. Um, but so I, for me, I feel more productive when I'm sort when I put on my work clothes and I'm dressed for the day, um, it's a losing cause. Uh, I realize that it was all it was a losing cause before the pandemic. Work from home has just kind of you know now it's even harder. I don't so I don't um, I don't criticize what anybody else wears. Um, I ask they don't do the same for me. Um, but I, um, I like to dress up, especially if I'm meeting with prospects or customers, like most folks at Sixth Sense probably haven't seen me in like a polo shirt or something like, you know, even when I was at, at trade shows, everybody's wearing the company t-shirts. Um, I'm in a coat and tie. Um, so that's something I evangelize again. Part of it's part of it's just been, that's been my style for a long time. I worked at a small men's store when I was in college. That was part of what caused me to leave software and do my own menswear business for 15 years. Part of it's I've got such an investment in my wardrobe, like might as well use it. Um, but so that's something I evangelize. I uh, it's, a, it's a losing battle every day, but I keep fighting the good fight. We had President's Club a month ago. I didn't take a single coat um, or pair of dress shoes. Um, uh, but like on the golf course, another funny example. So most people wear shorts when they golf. It, it, we were in Punta Mita, Mexico. It was, you know, mid eighties. Um, I used to carry a very exclusive golf wear brand um, that was only sold in kind of like the most exclusive country clubs. And their tagline was respect the game. And I think for a long time, they didn't sell shorts um, because like on the PGA tour, all the pros are wearing pants. Now that was part of, by the way, the whole live tour, Saudi Arabia thing. Like you could wear shorts if you wanted to. So I still wear pants on the golf course. Not that anybody's making me. I'm the furthest thing from a PGA professional. I don't even really keep score. But like I just out of principle, I wear pants on the golf course, you know, with the polo shirt, golf, you know, that type of thing. Um, I dress casually a lot. Um, uh, I would say my coworkers probably don't love the number of calls I take off camera because if I'm not dressed up, I don't like to be on camera. Um, so if there's a day where I'm not meeting with anybody and I'm just going to go to the cafe downtown and, and work on a script or a demo or something like that, I'm in a polo shirt and khakis or, you know, I don't dress up every day, but I do like to, I like to give the impression that I do when I, you know, I'll see a coworker or if a coworker, I had a coworker ask me if I owned a pair of jeans. I said, of course, I want to dress for every occasion. If someone asked me to go panning for gold, I would want to be dressed for it. So I have a pair of jeans for that. But, um. I'm not, you know, I own two or two or three, two pairs of jeans. 
I own some sneakers. Um, but uh, when in front of audiences for work, I like dressing up as just kind of my style and, and sort of a personal branding thing. Um, I'm harder to forget because I stick out in that respect. Um, so something I love to do. Really good. I appreciate uh, how much time and attention you've invested in this show. I appreciate you sharing with all of us uh, your experience uh, to date in your second evangelist role. If people want to connect with you directly or learn more about what you're up to, or perhaps even, you know, there are a lot of software folks and a lot of software executives that listen to this show. Uh, perhaps some of them might actually be ideal candidates for a, a lunch or a dinner with you. Uh, where would you point people to follow up on this conversation? Yeah. So before I do that, um, I just want to thank you for putting this whole podcast together um, because it, I mean, it sort of um, surprises me no one else has. Um, and I know this isn't your first podcast rodeo. You know, I first learned of you through your other one. Um, and so, you know, I know this is still probably a very niche audience, um, but I know you can tell everybody that's been a guest. I, you know, I reached out to you. I wanted to be a guest. Um, like you've definitely struck a nerve with this um, and, you know, kudos to you for for committing a lot of your personal time to doing this. Um, best way to find me is LinkedIn. Um, I'll accept almost everybody's connection request. Um, try to do a little bit of, actually, I do more posting now. I think I told you this before because of some of the early episodes of this podcast. I didn't do a lot of posting on LinkedIn, probably my first six or, six or eight months at, at Six Sense. Now I try to do, I'm not a content creator by any means, no desire to, um, but I do, you know, I definitely am promoting Six Sense, you know, or myself or my dinners um, uh, once or twice a week um, in part because of this podcast. So LinkedIn. Super. I will put you up uh, your LinkedIn profile in the description of this and wherever you're watching or listening, it won't be very far away. And of course we do a, a deeper dive on all these at chiefevangelist.com. Thank you so much. Safe travels, continued success, and let me know how the lunches go. Will do. Thanks, Ethan. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.